Hello, and welcome to Building Community with Whitney and Anu. We are two Asian American millennials who aim to empower our communities through our stories and words, one cup of tea at a time. Today, we have another special guest with us. We have Catherine Learn. Catherine is the founder of Canto Cutie Zine, a literature and art zine that publishes the work of Cantonese artists and writers around the world. So we're really excited to have you here today. Welcome. And I was looking at the zine recently, and it's so diverse. It has a lot of different types of media and a lot of different types of voices. And um, it's just really cool. So first, we'd just like to start out with um, a general overview of yourself and your upbringing and like um, how Canto Cutie came to start. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Um, right now, I live in Vermont. Um, Canto Cutie is a art and literature magazine about the Cantonese diaspora. Um, I'm an artist and writer myself, so I was looking for a lot of artwork, writing, poetry, short stories, just anything that discusses being a part of the diaspora. Right now, we are on our fifth volume. So this has been a project that I started at the beginning of the pandemic, and it's grown to quite, quite the thing it is now. Um, about my upbringing, um, I am from both Tucson, Arizona, and Austin, Texas. Um, those are two not centers of Asian culture, as I am aware of in the U.S. Um, Tucson, Arizona is just this sleepy town in Arizona. Um, my grandfather, so my mom's mom, migrated there um, along with a lot of his siblings. My grandfather is number nine of nine and number eight and number two, and I think number five also migrated to Tucson at the same time, often under fake names. They were um, grocery store owners that brought their family over and um, growing up, um, Growing up in Tucson, that was the center of my world. I thought, you know, all Asians come here. This is where it happens. And I was surrounded by my cousins and people that looked like me, even though we were a very small minority within Tucson. And um, I lived there for a few years, but really I grew up in Austin, Texas. I moved there when I was five years old. A lot of other Asian American and immigrant families were moving there at that time because of new tech businesses and large companies that were moving there. So my dad was also a part of that. I grew up very staunchly Southern evangelical, going to church, you know, four or five times a week. Um, this was called non-denominational Christianity. It's Baptist light is that's how I would describe it to other people. But again, I grew up in a community with all sorts of Asian people as part of the church. My family wasn't the founding members, but they were leaders at that church. My dad was a deacon. My, he arranged food. Um, they, my dad taught Sunday school. My mom was heavily involved. We hosted international students my whole life from Hong Kong. And so... This was a community I grew up in with a lot of first generation and second generation immigrants and their children. 
the high school I went to in Austin, again, really not a center of Asian culture, much like LA or New York is, but it was very diverse. It was just this island of immigrants, first and second gen. The school I went to was 40%, you know, AAPI with a lot of immigrants from Taiwan, Korea, China, Hong Kong, India, Pakistan. So a lot of this diaspora, I grew up being like, of course, everyone's different. Of course, we have these stories. And of course, we have these parents that aren't good at English. And of course, everyone goes to another country for, you know, summer vacation. That's just what we do. And um, being really immersed in like weekly, more than weekly gatherings of my culture, going to Bible studies and just hanging out with my friends and doing church things with people in Cantonese and Chinese and English, um, taking vacations together as part of this tight knit community, um, taking trips to Chinatown, which was in Houston, a whole three hours away together, and participating in Chinese school and Chinese ribbon dance. And so I guess my upbringing, it's interesting because as I've iterated before, they aren't the centers of Asian culture um, in the US, but I'm so prideful of it. And I loved, I loved growing up in those places and it definitely makes me, um, it gives me motivation to elevate and it gives me motivation to elevate voices that are different and makes me interested in other people's experiences because everyone's experiences are valid and so interesting and there's so many similarities but also so many differences so i love using cantic studio as that and i mentioned now i live in vermont which is just totally different it's one of the smallest states in the u.s least populous and um i'm sure we'll talk more about that later but it's it's been great i am I'm really glad everything in my life has brought me to this and Cancer Cutie and meeting you guys and talking about this with you guys. Yeah, you know, Catherine, I, I can relate to coming from a state that's, you know, not necessarily diverse. I'm originally from Michigan, so I found that I didn't get a lot of the representation I was looking for when I was younger. So it's that old saying, um, if you don't, if you don't find something, create it. And I think that's that's what you've been doing, which has been amazing. Um, can you tell us more about um, how you started Canto Cutie? Um, do you have a team or do you work as a one-person machine? Well, how is it like? So um, I'm an artist and writer. And so I've gone through, you know, the rat race of trying to get published, trying to be in the right art shows, trying to figure out where which platforms are best for my work and so these kind of experiences kind of led me to start Canto Cutie because I wanted to make a publication that essentially I would want to submit to and a safe place that other artists and writers would feel comfortable submitting to and um, I would say that um, I started Canto Cutie from those experiences wanting to make it better for the generation of artists and writers after me. So I understand that as an artist and writer, often I would be the only Asian American submitter, the only one published. And um, 
I found it important to talk about belonging. And that's why I started Canted Cutie, to find other people and let's belong together. Let's celebrate together. Um, a lot of AAPI representation, when we talk about belonging, the focus is on, is on immigrant stories. Whereas like we have this shared experience of being Asian American in America and which is great, this is an experience that should be celebrated, that should be discussed, that should be criticized. But at the same time, I realize, you know, stories of being American, this is alienating towards, you know, our other diaspora all around the world. And um, people within the diaspora who don't identify as American, they can be turned off by these labels. Where for us saying, for example, dim sum is our culture, when for some people in the diaspora, it's not our culture, that's cringy, that's their everyday life. So I wanted to start Cancer Kitty to unite and uh, just to talk about these experiences without alienating. So when I started, it was a one person operation. I was begging artists literally on Instagram, like, hey, I'm thinking of starting a magazine. Please let me interview you. Please let me feature your work. Please let me print your work. And so that was volume one when I started um, reaching out to one of the artists that now helps me with the zine, Z Cam. Z Cam is featured in volume one. And I think volume one has about seven other interviews with other artists. So after that, we got a little more well-known via Instagram. And so since each volume, I've added a few people to my team. So now I have um, three volunteers. One is a translator. Um, they prefer to remain anonymous because of some of the scary national security laws I'll talk about later. I have someone that helps me try to form wholesale relationships with shops and stockists and I have other people that help me edit and curate and decide what should go into the next zine and kind of cur curatorial decisions that we make together. So in working with these three people, none which I have ever met in real life, I think what keeps me going and what pulls me towards this work again and again is just um, I guess before I talk about that, I want to say that these are three people that I would have never met in my life. And I, I still haven't technically met them. And we're so different and we're in different countries and we have different experiences. And uh, some people, you know, Cantonese is their main language. English is their second language. That's not the case for me. And so I think like the values of the zine overall is that we value overall transparency with our artists and writers, transparency in the way we want our lives to be run in our respective countries. Um, Cancer Cutie is critical of governments and governing bodies, any, anything that we can have a say about, we do. And I think these kind of values, while we might not list them out up front, um, Canto Cuties about artists and writers wanting ownership of their jobs and their lives and their country's future. Might that be Hong Kong or in the US or wherever? So these are kind of the loose, these are kind of the values that unite our publication. I definitely um, relate to that 
like you kind of get your zine around like by word of mouth like when we started building community it was like it was starting during the pandemic as well and um what brought Anu and I together was that we met in a group and um somebody had said like a casually like racist comment about Asian people in the pandemic and we were texting each other privately and we were like oh this is kind of messed up and um I think Anu was like oh and I'm also trying to form a podcast I need a co-host and I was like I don't know anything about podcasting but I'm down and so that's um yeah I definitely like I feel like a lot of not just Asian creators but people of color as well like when they create something it, it's definitely by word of mouth like we kind of um, learn about each other through social media and as much as social media for me is like a, I get tired of social media often like I likewise like I found your zine I found like a lot of other creators um, we found a lot of people to connect with through um, those channels and so it's it's really cool that um, we're kind of connected in some way through this technology um, thinking about when we were talking about um, growing up in a diaspora community i um really i also related to like just experiencing culture differently because like for me like um i'm learning japanese right now and japanese is my third language that i'm learning and so um i grew up like around it but um because of assimilation like my experience growing up asian american was very like kind of assimilationist so it's like you have to be american first and so i have to like kind of reclaim my culture like later and so um, I think it's great that you were able to grow up going to Chinese school and like learning about various things. And I think that's awesome. And I grew up in California. So it's like, even if you grow up in a place where a lot of Asian people live, it's like, it's not always like as accessible, I guess. But yeah, I thought that was cool. That's really cool that you grew up in California. I'm sure a lot of people in the diaspora have a very complex relationship with California, especially mm -hmm how charged this land is historically. And I'd always been really jealous, low-key jealous of my cousins that lived in Sacramento mm -hmm. because their Chinese was way better than mine and I will never sure. be able to catch up. Yeah, my, um, so I'm originally from Monterey and whenever I mention Monterey, people are like, oh, it's like Big Little Lies. I've still never seen that show. But like, um, I mean, like I had to like Google it one time when someone like, oh, have you watched it? I'm like, what is that? But so I grew up in Monterey, but within Monterey is a tiny, tiny town that nobody knows about called Pacific Grove. And that's where I went to high school and I grew up in. So um, in Monterey itself, it's mostly white. So my family was one of two Asian families. And, um, but a neighboring community in Monterey County is Marina and Marina is made up of um, a lot of immigrants. So there's a lot of Latinx people who live there now. But when I was growing up, um, that was like the kind of Asian um, diaspora area. So like my grandparents lived there. We lived on, they lived on a cul-de-sac where there were a lot of Japanese immigrants and um, we had Chinese and Korean people living around as well. And so um, that was kind of cool to get access to culture, just like highway one away so like half an hour drive and then you're kind of in a different um different world and so it's like I kind of felt like I had one foot in and one foot out kind of because um I was like immersed in it but I had to kind of like turn it off at school which is kind of strange but yeah California is definitely complex I think it's a common um for me I feel like it's a common like misconception where it's like oh you have people around you all the time it's like well there's little pockets of california where it's very homogenized 
um, when I was living in LA, I was like, this is the most diverse place I've lived in. Um, and so that's like the one thing I miss about living in LA. I don't miss the traffic. Sorry, you know. Canto Cutie focuses on the Cantonese diaspora, which from the zine has so many diverse experiences, right? Because Cantonese people can be found all over the world. So Catherine, what is your curating process like to determine who makes it into the zine and who doesn't make it? That's a great question. Thanks for asking. Canto Cutie is a special place for English-speaking voices in Hong Kong. This zine was started the height of the sedition and national security laws of 2020. So this was a place where we actively wanted to celebrate community organizers and activists that were part of the umbrella movement and anything that was going on in Hong Kong. While we specifically, while the zine is not inherently political, I think just being part of this identity is political in itself. And so my zine started out as like, okay, I'm an Asian American. I'm safely here in the US. How can I use that power, that very small amount of power to elevate those voices that are actively being stomped out? And so that is kind of how the zine started. But when I went about that, you know, not knowing that much Chinese, but wanting to meet other people who are similar to me, whether that be politically or through linguistics or, you know, just being other Asian Americans. So I found out that over time, Cancer TV is more about people who are critical about their prescribed roles. So the first artist I mentioned in the question before, Z Cam, they're one of the artists that I interviewed in volume one. They also have a spread in volume four, I think. And uh, this is Z still works with me in curating and editing the zine. In the first interview with Z, and very pretty much our very first interaction, when Z agreed to let me use their artwork in the zine and agreed to talk to me, Z is very critical about decolonization and how Asian Americans use that word. Because while this really applies to Native peoples in the U.S., who are living in their, you know, unceded land that still belongs to them. You know, when Asian Americans use this word, what does that mean? And can we just use it in the same way? So Z is critical about how Asian Americans, as they approach, you know, wanting to be an activist, finding their political selves, can we use the word decolonization? And what are the nuances about that? Should we proceed? you know, with our Asian American activism in that way. And as well in that interview, Z is critical about, you know, CCP's role and how Asian Americans identify. So for some Asian Americans, we're nostalgic. We think about this land we've never been or only gone on vacation. And we think like, okay, this is the end all be all. For me to find my culture, it's to connect with that land, connect with modern day people. And Z and myself and a lot of others in the zine kind of imply, well, is that what culture means? Does culture mean to blindingly like follow what you perceive your parents' culture to be? Instead, I kind of think it's 
more about being critical about your life, being critical about um, the country that you might romanticize. And it's okay to do that because when life gets hard in the U.S., kind of that's all we have to turn to. And so I would say that Cancer Cutie, kind of the kind of people we, um, the kind of people, like the kind of artists and writers who gravitate towards this zine, they're also wanting to ask questions, wanting to celebrate and be prideful, but also ask questions. And I hope this zine shows people that it's not a monolith. It's, it's a place where our identity is still being formed. So let's ask questions and let's do more than just blindly be nostalgic for a land that may, may or may not exist, may or may not have oppression. And I know it gets very weird and political, but I think that this zine and the artists within it, you know, they're working towards a more ownership of their own lives, trying to make, I think a lot of artists and writers, they're seeking that community that's like the co-op model where everyone feels like I have a piece, I am important. Like the life we live right now, it's not sustainable. If I'm just going to grind and, and make art to earn money, that's not how I want to live. So what is a better world? So I hope my zine is also a place where people can ask, like, what does that better world look like? Um, and I guess also selfishly in the zine, there's a lot of painting and poetry because those are my favorite things, though I try to curate, you know, fairly and try to let all types of mediums be allowed but selfishly I love poetry and I love paintings and um, I think it was really interesting Whitney that you mentioned social media too because that is how I do most of my marketing that's how I do most of my like talking and reaching out and recruiting artists and writers and as a result because I'm using mostly Instagram and only Instagram we skew young, you know, I'm probably the oldest of all the writers and artists that submit because I'm 30, I'm a millennial, but we're old already. <laughs> and so because, you know, it skews young and um, there's a lot of artists and writers who are much younger than me, there's, I would argue that some of the work, it's naive and that's okay. We're experimenting there's people who are 10, 20 years younger than me thinking about um, what it means to be Cantonese. But I think these kind of conversations and giving a place for young people to really ask it and be surrounded by ideas and having them choose, pick and choose what ideas they want, that's really important because it's ultimately the young people who are going to pave a way for like the new identity, the new world. and you know, what we had maybe politically or whatever that means, it might not be sustainable. So I leave it in the hands of young people. And hopefully I, this zine, maybe if you can't be published in it, but will inspire young people to create, to make that world, to make that art zine, to make that art co-op they dream of and want to be a part of. So that is, Maybe the answer to your question, <laughs> I think it's an answer to a question, though. You make a great point about 
um, romanticizing countries that you've never been to or have only experienced through a certain lens. Like um, I was actually thinking about that because I knew we were going to chat today and I was thinking about the zine and like um, just the way it's presented. It's it's on it's kind of it's unlike any zine I've seen because it's bilinguals. It's very accessible. There's a paid version and a, and a digital version you can look at online. So it seems like you and your team go out of your way to make this zine accessible to your community, which is which is amazing. And for me, I um, I was thinking about like, do I romanticize Japan? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Because like I was thinking about um, like growing up, like I've never been to Japan. I want to go to Japan someday. Right now it's closed to tourists. Um, you can't travel independently right now. You have to go on a tour um, that's curated by people who live there. And you're kind of just like babysat, like as a tourist. And um, for me, selfishly, I'm like, oh, but I want to go to the Ghibli Museum and the Pokemon Center. I just like, and the way I've experienced Japanese culture as a child um, was like through through these cartoons and like learning about um, learning about my understanding of Japanese culture through cartoons and food and things that um, things that assimilation was like kind of giving us a pass on, I guess, if that makes sense. And so um, for me, it's like, I am continuously trying to make peace with like, you know, being Japanese American, like there is a lot of things that I have access to that my grandmother who um, came here from Japan, um, she married my grandfather who was in the army. They met in Japan and he, they got married and he brought her here. And um, that's how she lives here now. But um, I have a lot of access to things that she didn't. And I'm like, you know, it's important to acknowledge that like my experience of Japanese culture is partially through this kind of Americanized lens. And it doesn't mean that it's less than or not as authentic. Like people like to throw around, like, are we authentic enough um, a lot? And um, I'm like, you know, there are parts of Japanese culture that, that I love. Like there's a sense of community, like in my experience, there's a sense of community and like pride and food and like um, keeping up traditions. But there are also experiences that I wouldn't want to relate to where it's like, like my grandma didn't get a chance to go to college. Like she, um, I'm a child-free person. Like she felt obligated to have children. And that's, so it's a very patriarchal culture. Um, and also uh, queer people don't have a lot of rights there. And so that's very important to me. And so um, it's important to see the country, to see whatever your motherland is like, as like, a whole and not just like this kind of romanticized like I went there on family vacations and I loved it so much but um both can exist at the same time I think yeah it's it's interesting for me I my uh, birth country was India so I've never really romanticized India maybe because it's a very uh, parts of it are very impoverished um and uh places are struggling over there I think I've always romanticized America, but when you were talking, it taught me the importance of even being critical of where, you know, you're, you are right now, which um, might be America. And uh, even with things that we took for granted 10 or 20 years ago, like the American dream and so on, like, is that really as prevalent today or is that really as existent today as it was? Um, is it as attainable today as it was 20 years ago? It's that's a, I, I think the mindset that you're bringing here is really remarkable. 
I definitely relate to what you're saying, you know, about just being critical of the American dream. I think as, you know, minorities in the U.S., sometimes we think like we are not allowed to be critical, like out loud in English speaking spaces. Like, yes, we can mumble about it and grumble about it at home with our parents and our community and ha ha ha, look at this culture or, you know, we don't like this, we don't like that. But, you know, I think that's kind of how why it's kind of hard and why this why the the struggle has been the struggle it has been for you know AAPI representation in politics because we're we look different and we're constantly faced with like hey I'm a visitor here or somewhere along the way I was invited here or somewhere along the way um, I got here and maybe not by um, my own merits. So I definitely agree with you that we should be critical of the American dream. And I think we're starting to be more publicly, but I think also uh, being minorities, we have always felt that maybe we didn't get a say or like we should be thankful for the few rights we have. You know, I think anti-blackness plays a big role in this. Like, okay, at least we're not at the bottom of the poll. So let's be thankful and be quiet and just keep hustling. So what you're saying definitely makes me think about that. Yeah, I with the American dream, like it's so surreal. Um, I like, as you know, like um, a lot of Supreme Court decisions have been made, being made lately. And so I've been seeing a lot of people on my social media being like, oh, this isn't the America that I knew. And it's like, this wasn't. And for me, I feel anyone who says that it comes it comes from a place of privilege because it's like yeah like you were able to turn a blind eye to it but pretty much every horrible thing in like um like handmaid's tale people tend to talk about handmaid's tale they compare the country to handmaid's tale and i i get that but i'm like you know this has been happening to indigenous people and black people like everything that if you read handmaid's tale it's a great book if you haven't read it um it, it's already happened it already happened to indigenous and black people and even as minorities, like we have to know, like, I, I'm not trying to say like, oh, we have to know our place, but like, it's very much like we have to be there for, um, we have to be there for other minorities as well. Like I, for me, something that bothers me about the older generations of Asian people that um, I've experienced is that they're like, well, we're not at the bottom. Like, um, like you've said, I've definitely, I've literally heard that where it's like, well, we're not these people. And we should be thankful and we have to show loyalty. That was a huge, huge thing um, in my diaspora community where it's like, I have to show loyalty to the US. Um, and for me, it was like, why? Like, why is it that if we have our kind of crumbles here, like our crumbs of um, society, like, shouldn't we be striving for more? Shouldn't we be trying to make it better for everyone? Like, instead of just being thankful that like, white people let us live a little bit longer like I'm not really sure like um I I've never really been okay with that I've never thought that that was um acceptable and so even though I'm inherently pessimistic in some ways where it's like oh I don't know if it's ever going to get better it's like I want to um I think that's another thing I love about your saying it's like it dares people to dream of a better world where it's like I would love to be proven wrong about like all the stuff that's been going on in society right now and um I think it's good that we hold not just people who are older than us, 
but um, the younger generation as well accountable. Cause like, yeah, we're millennials and um, we're actually all roughly the same age. And so I'm like, Oh, I feel, I know I'm not old rationally. I'm not old, but I feel a little bit old. Cause I don't, we don't use TikTok to promote the podcast where like people are like, Oh, you can use TikTok. And I just refuse to use TikTok. Um, Cause I'm lazy. <laughs> and so I, I'm like, oh, I really hope this younger generation also continues the work that I like to think that us millennials have helped out with. Like, I feel like us millennials, we don't really give each other enough credit of like, cause we, we've struggled a lot with like, with like being critical of, of the American dream. I think we're the first generation to be truly critical of it. And I hope the younger generation um, continues that. What's TikTok? <laughs> TikTok is the bane of my existence. No, it's um, I I feel like I'm on TikTok because people send me TikToks, and so I'm like, people will send me like um, I love cats, and so people will send me like cats. People will send me like, um, when I first moved to Chicago, I learned about this guy. Um, his name is Six Figure Dilla, Six Figure Dilla, and um, he he's like a Chicago historian, so he like talks about little snippets of Chicago, and that's how I learned about the various neighborhoods. And he's amazing. And um, I was like, I really hope that TikTok never makes me get an account to watch these because I don't know if I would do it. I just, I mean, Twitter is trying to get me to make an account. I don't have Twitter either. So, but um, yeah, that's what TikTok is <laughs> to me. Yeah, I absolutely do not know anything about TikTok. And when I talk to people 10 or 20 years older than me, they're like, Instagram, that's all you use to, you know, promote your zine. How is that possible? So I think everyone shows their age by what platform they prefer. Another thing I wanted to ask you about and talk a little more about is um, as we, you know, as Asian Americans, again, not a monolith, come into activism and get more prominent in politics, you know, there's, there's often talk about, um, there's often, there can be talk about like, yeah, screw the white people, the white people did this, you know, but as someone who is from the Cantonese diaspora, my parents are from Hong Kong, you know, are identified, like, my parents are from Hong Kong. I've benefited from colonization Absolutely. due to Hong Kong being this like special, special role within the British Empire. And I know, Anu, you said you're from India, so you probably have a very complex relationship too, where it can't just be, yeah, screw the white man, Brits suck, you know, you can't just adopt that kind. So I'm just wondering what your relationship in maybe talking to like older and younger generations, or I guess other Indian Americans with the word colonization, like, do you talk about it? How do you talk about it? I'm just really curious about your perspective. Yeah, you know what? It's it's very interesting that you bring that up because I actually have never had a conversation about that. And I think it goes to show how, you know, uh, unspoken, how that's such an unspoken topic within the culture. Um, it's, it's, it's never come up, but again, it's like, I think it takes generations like ours to be the ones to step up and say, let's have these conversations, let's have these dialogues, um, because it's not necessarily that, you know, the older generations won't have those conversations. It's, it may be more so just have their upbringing and their values and culture to, you know, sort of um, go with the flow and not 
you know, not cause a commotion or anything like that. So I think um, to answer your question, like it's, it's actually never been brought up to me. Do you think you'll um, try to bring it up to people in your family or your, or friends? Yeah, I think I will at some point. I think it's, I think these kinds of issues, the dialogue needs to start somewhere. And one of the reasons that your zine is amazing is because you're, you're creating this platform, as you said, where you're able to have these kinds of conversations and have um, these voices that are underrepresented. So yeah, I, I personally, you know, I probably won't bring it <laughs> to, to the Thanksgiving dinner table, but I'll, I'll bring it somewhere else, a little less contentious than our Thanksgiving table. <laughs> Christmas dinner. Yeah, yeah. Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, oh, as someone who has brought up stuff to Thanksgiving dinners, it is, it's something you have to have the mindset for. Like, in my experience, like, it's hard to it's hard to bring stuff like that up to um, to people of the older generations. Like a few years back, I tried to bring up um, internalized racism towards other Asian people um, in the diaspora community to my grandparents, and they didn't want to talk about it at all. They were like, no, like, we're not racist. Like, we're, they just like shut me down a bunch. But I was also like 15 at the time. So I just had... <laughs> I, I don't think I I think I had started kind of like getting the language to like talk about racism more because like it's not exactly taught to us. Um, we just experience it. But I also noticed that like there was like internalized racism towards other people, um, other people of Asian descent. And I just thought that was weird because we all benefit. It's like we benefit from each other's food and culture and like just enrichment and I was like why why don't you talk to these people and they were just like I don't know and it's like you have a reason obviously but um so it could take a few tries but if you decide to do it do let us know we're going to talk about it on the podcast. yeah I I just realized like I don't have these like types of in-depth conversations necessarily with family it's more so you know like surface level like how are you doing are you eating well those kinds of questions you know like very mundane, just surface level questions. So yeah, it's definitely something interesting to explore for sure. Yeah. I, I really related to what you were saying, Whitney, about how like we don't talk about the in, in community racism that exists, how you said, because, you know, as, you know, a Cantonese person, I know which groups, you know, that are cool and not cool with the elders and which Mm -hmm. ones we throw under the bus when we can and stuff like that. And ultimately it's very harmful for everyone. And we know that, but um, it makes me think about like, I guess recently I had an interaction where I had to share like, well, actually, historically like these two groups don't get along and I had I think I shared that with like a white American friend and I think when white Americans find this information out they're surprised and then also Mm -hmm. like oh shit like did I just reveal a secret because that's something I don't want promoted anyway I don't know if you've had experiences like that I've been thinking a lot about just being a representative of my race or my mm-hmm. culture as I live in Vermont now, you know, being like rep- 
representing what an Asian person does and lives and what they do in society. That's kind of my full-time job now because, you know, there's very few, you know, people of color in the state. And I think it's, I don't know what your comment makes me think about my experience. And also it makes me think about, I think you said this in a previous episode where I think you were talking to the CEO of Alike and you were saying that being a queer Asian woman is hard today, but then some days it's fun and easy. And I agree with that. Sometimes I love representing like, oh, you don't know anything about Asian culture? Let me show you. This is what we do. This is how Mm -hmm. we talk. Look at us. We speak English. Like we like these things and just knowing people are going to walk away with that. But at the same time, sometimes, yeah, it is hard. And there are things I don't want to share. And there are things where I'm like, I'm very tired of representing this for you people. Can you just stop watching me for a minute? Definitely. I for sure had experiences where like, um, actually when you mentioned like sharing things with, um, with a white friend, um, my fiance and I've had to navigate racial tension and like the inherent power dynamic in our relationship. And we've been doing that for going on 10 years now. And so, um, with us, we just talk about it in the open and I'm just like, you know, it's not, it's not representative of like all Asian people, obviously, but, um, this is just my experience and other people's experiences are different. And so, but with them, it's like, we have an intimate relationship where it's like, now they know that it's my experience or it reflects the experiences of a friend who like has talked to us and it's not just like blanket statement. I think sometimes when I talk to people who I don't know as much, like um, sometimes I'm afraid of like a distant relative of theirs or a, um, or like a, a colleague or something where it's like, I'm right currently, like I'm one of like a couple of people of color in, um, in my day job. And sometimes I'm like, it's just me. Like, I got to be a credit to the Asian community, the LGBT community and the tattooed community and just like (laughs) just all the stuff. And it's like I my therapist was like, you take on a lot of stuff for yourself and you really don't have to. You can just you can just exist like as someone It doesn't impact how you do your job and it doesn't impact how you talk to these random people. Like, you don't have to do that. And like for me, I was like, I think it's it comes from a sense of pride and I totally relate to being like, yes, let me talk to you about Asian culture. And I, cause I love Asian culture and I love, I love my, the things that I love about Japanese culture specifically. Cause like, that's nostalgic for me. Like I grew up in it and it's very, it's dear to my heart. Um, in my experience of it, but like, sometimes it's also like, I want to send an invoice to these people and be like, <laughs> for sitting on this <laughs> anti-racist discussion, I want to bill you for it. Cause I just exist in this group, but um, yeah, I definitely relate to like, sometimes it's tiring and it's just, it's a complicated, but like really beautiful kaleidoscope of existence. But um, yeah, emotional labor, it's, it's totally a thing when you're a minority because people get curious. And so for me, it's like, I think when I was younger, when I was in college, I was like, I would take things personally. I would be like, oh, racist, like, you don't know anything about me white people and I still say that sometimes like to my um my fiance and I'm just like you white people but like I just um it's also like I don't know sometimes it can be fun to to talk about it and take pride in it um and even like in queer culture too like for me like being a queer Asian American it's like it can be fun to talk about 
those intersections. And then sometimes I'm just tired. I'm like tired of like being a brochure, but I, I think I want, for me, I like to have that. Um, I like to have that choice where it's like, if I don't feel like talking about something, people don't pry. Like if people don't pry on me, then it's okay. But like some, every so often, like I'm sure we've both experienced this where people will be like, wait, but I'm curious. I want to like, where are you from? Like, that's something that I get sometimes. Um, and it's like, it's like, I just don't want to do it today. Sorry. Catch me 20 business days from now. I don't know. But yeah. <laughs> I think for me, like being someone who was born in another country, but I grew up in uh, Michigan. Um, I think I just have always felt like sort of halfway in between both cultures and there's a term called like abcd um and i think i've just felt like i'm in the middle of both the indian and the american cultures so um for me i don't necessarily feel like i always am a representation of either one of those i think for me because of that uh being halfway between those two I've always just felt like Anu, so I just bring myself to the to the table, um, just my weird, awkward self. And yeah, so for me, in terms of representing the culture, I I don't personally feel the pressure to do that. Maybe because I do feel like I'm not super connected to either culture. Like I'm sort of like have my toes in both of them. So. That's my personal experience. I think it's really, I admire you, Anu, and I'm envious because um, growing up, I didn't, you know, feel as I was a representative either. And just, you know, you, you said like, I'm just me. But I guess now that I live in this, I live in Vermont and I've only been here for a year. Suddenly, you know, I feel like this weight on my shoulders and I think to be free of that weight would be very awesome and I hope I have enough like insurance premiums to pay for all the therapy I need to not feel like the weight of being a representative of so many things same you know I hope I hope for the same <laughs> sure I I can I can feel the exhaustion of that for sure um back to Canto Cutie for a sec um what is your favorite thing about creating zines, Catherine? Uh, like, what is your relationship to zine making? How did it come about? And uh, I don't believe we asked you this before, but what is the thing that motivates you to, to keep this going? Yeah, I would say my favorite thing about creating zines is that it can be about any topic. If you just like use the hashtag zines on Instagram, you'll find zines about anything. It's just like whatever you, there's pure, there's per zines, there's informational zines, there's like poetry and art zines. And of course there are some zines that resemble more like literary and arts journals like mine does. So I love that zines can be about any topic on any budget. Um, while I do, you know, spend hours working with like um, InDesign and Affinity Publisher and these kind of programs to make Canto Cutie and make it the way it looks and feels. Um, you know, there are topics I want to make a zine about, like on paper. Like for example, a few years ago, um, I think eight years ago, I spent a year in Russia and I want to make a zine about being Asian American in Russia because I think other people need to know. And I'm excited about thinking about what can be in that zine or 
just also being like an Asian Jew, which is also what I am. And just like, we need more writing. We need more art about this identity. I created a lot of mini zines growing up. I think just maybe similar to how you guys grew up. You grew up with like J14 or those like really, I don't even know how to describe them because they were like thinner than regular magazines and they were only about celebrities and they came with posters and they were like not as like professionally designed as like Seventeen Magazine or Teen Vogue. It was like only about celebrities. Yeah, so I would get those very poorly designed mass-produced magazines and then like cut them up and make my own. Like I wanted a magazine only about Usher and I remember cutting out only the picture of Usher from like five of those magazines and putting it together. <laughs> and um, I worked on, you know, I was in my high school and university publications. I worked as a teacher for many years and helping children run their own literary and arts magazine. So I, that's kind of my relationship with zine making, that it's always been about possibilities and teamwork and fun and making something so great to look at and read and that you would want to read. And I would say trying to bring it to kids or just thinking about youth and future generations in mind makes zine making so hopeful because there's just so many holes that like, you know, professional mass publishing hasn't filled and zines can. So it's a great happy relationship and I'm so excited when I meet another young person not me I'm not young but other young people making scenes I also wanted to say that one thing that I really respect Catherine is that you mentioned this before about elevating voices and it sounds like uh, that's exactly what you're doing and it it's quite remarkable because I feel like in this day and age of social media everyone is trying to elevate themselves to some extent. They're trying to elevate their own voice. But what I see from you is you're trying to elevate a community and elevate other people, which is really refreshing and very, very commendable. So great work. I absolutely love zine making as a zine maker myself. Like I, I've always been enamored with books. Like um, I would like, if anyone's like, Oh, what do you collect? I usually just say books now. Um, But what really got me into zine making as a child was the J14 magazines and just like because I I felt like with art supplies like I was a bit precious about them because growing up my mom was like oh you have to keep everything nice and clean and um, you can't use the markers too much or else you'll wear them out like it was just like kind of weird but like with magazines and newspapers like you can mess them up and you just get a new one the next day like it's not a problem Um, and so I really enjoyed making like um, collages and then um, I watched as a 90s kid, I watched the show Rocket Power, which was for all you youngins out there who haven't experienced the glory of Rocket Power. It's about this. Um, they live in a beach town and they it's these four kids and they skateboard and they surf and they just do like these extreme athletics and they're like 10 years old. And it's hilarious. Um, but my favorite character, Reggie, she was the only girl um, on the show. She made a zine like out of her garage. And so she had a laser printer and she had like a shitty 90s computer and she named it Reggie's zine. And I was like, what's a zine? And so I I like kind of experimented with like what I thought a zine was. And she just like would hand out her zines and people would take it and read it. And I was like, you don't, I, from a young age, I was like, 
okay, well, the publishing world like is inherently gatekeepy, but you don't necessarily have to go through the gatekeeper. If you want to get your stuff out there, you can just like print stuff out of your garage and hand it out to people you live around. But um, so I thought that was really cool. And that's why I love zine making as well. So I was really excited when you reached out because I was like, oh, hell yeah, zines. I love zines because you can just, it can be about anything and it doesn't get old. Like no matter how many zines I read about being Asian or um, no matter how many zines I read about like, like people's, Perzines, like everything, it's always fresh to me. Like I never feel like no two zines are alike, and that's one of my favorite things um, about zines. So, yeah, I was really excited when I was like, "Oh, it's she she considers it a zine." That's it's really cool. I think it's really interesting that you mentioned Rocket Power because I didn't know that she had her own zine. I don't think I didn't have cable growing up, so I missed out on that show. Now I really want to check it out. It might be on um, YouTube. Okay. Yeah. I was, or your reference about Rocket Power made me think of, I don't know if you read American Girl books. There was that one girl, Kit Kittredge, who was like born during Great Depression times or whatever. And she had like this in-house newspaper. At that time, there were like boarders living in her house, something. Yeah, she had like strangers living. And so she'd make this newspaper out of her typewriter and like pass it to everyone where it's like news around the house and so that definitely shaped probably way too much about why I am the way I am today kind of like that rocket power rocket scene absolutely I love American Girl um I was thinking about that because in Chicago, there's one, there's an American Girl doll store downtown and I never had a doll growing up, but I did have a lot of books. I checked off in the library. So I would read like all the original ones. And I think I read up to Kit and then, um, then I stopped unfortunately, but there's actually an Asian American girl of the year now, which is cool. She's a snowboarder and she lives in Colorado. I saw that walking by the window of the American Girl doll store. So finally we get one. Amy, did you ever make zines or little books or or were you someone that minded your own business and didn't need to bother people with your little newspapers and stuff? No, not necessarily newspapers. I think as a writer, I was also I was always very introverted. So I would do a lot of writing. Um, sometimes I do poetry. Sometimes I would just do fiction writing, like short stories and so on. And a lot of those just like they sat on my computer for years and years and it's actually now like 10 20 years later that I'm finding these platforms like Instagram and so on where I can publish them so it's very interesting that I like have these works from earlier or ideas from earlier and I'm kind of capitalizing upon them now But yeah, back to uh, the zines. Um, Do you find any particular challenges in terms of making them? Yeah, I think the main challenge, of course, is funding. Um, Because my zine has to be professionally printed, I rely on the sales of the previous zine to support the next one. So it's self-funded right now. Ultimately, I want to move to a model where I can pay the artists and, like I said, be the publication I want to submit to myself, you know, I love submitting to paying um, markets. And if I can be able to pay the artists, that'll not only support them, that'll just like 
elevate like our mission that, you know, first of all, art and writing is important to society. You know, we we value these voices and we want to protect these voices. So if I get to a model where I can pay, I can really, you know, live out that mission. I would say another challenge is um, um, I've run into this a little bit on social media. It's where like someone with, you know, political views that don't agree with ours, even though much of our zine is just very like exploratory of identity as a whole, there will be people saying like, you guys are Americans or you guys don't even speak Chinese very well. You are not in China. How can you have a say about this? So there's kind of some animosity when people discover that this exists. There are definitely people who don't think Cantonese people exist because we are under the umbrella of Chinese. We need to be thankful for that and um, identify as such because identifying as Cantonese implies that we have a separate culture or history or a different experience. And honestly, there are people who don't want that being discussed. A big challenge is, of course, hand in hand with that is the national security law passed in Hong Kong in 2020. There are a few articles in it that imply that, yes, implying that you're separate or that Hong Kong is different, that can be criminalized. And there are journalists and there are writers and thinkers who are being jailed and actively trying, um, people trying to wipe out their writings and what they're saying, trying to make them talk quieter, you know, make their life harder. So we kind of operate in that kind of scary landscape. And of course, many artists in Hong Kong, they've heard of our zine and they're interested, they might read it, but they're scared to submit. We um, have anonymous submissions and we have people who use fake names and stuff and I wish I could do more to protect these people and uh, that's just kind of the landscape we're navigating and as much as I want it to just be this fun magazine where we have pretty pictures and have nice poems about how great life is it's not going to be like that and that is a big challenge I face with keeping the zine going. Um, I've been talking to my grandpa who's been wanting to take me to, to his like hometown in China for years and then like COVID hit and then I started this magazine <laughs> and he's like, yeah, we can't go. You, it's not gonna be safe. So I, I know I kind of, um, you know, is the phrase like, I made this bed and now I'm sleeping in it. I think that's the phrase or I dug this grave. I don't know, but I understand that there are challenges with this zine, especially, I mean, the name's so cute. Cancer Cutie, it's adorable, but actually it's a little bit more than that. <laughs> it is adorable. Has, <laughs> has your identity as a Cantonese person impacted your journey with Canto Cutie? And just jumping off of that, your identity as a woman and the other uh, identities that you, um, you relate to? Yeah, so growing up, I wasn't, you know, the spokesperson for all Cantonese people, you know, I was just me, like you said, but I think now that it has grown to what it has become, 
you know, this international magazine with almost five volumes, you know, where it's sold and who we've impacted and who's published in it. It's, it's grown to now, like, I am the representative, I am the speaker, and I better, you know, get my talking points in place if I'm going to keep doing this, because now I'm impacting a lot of people's lives, not just the artists and writers, but it's my duty to protect them, and it's my duty to elevate their voices and give them a platform and respect what they need to say. But knowing that, like, also, I would say that, you know, I have to really take care of myself now and um, really also come to terms that with my shame and not knowing, you know, cancer news very well and the shame I experienced, like trying to, you know, learn this language growing up, you know, yes, it's my first language, but what does first language really mean for the diaspora? And um, so my identity has definitely been impacted. And I think um, when I started Cantor Cutie, I was in the Bay Area, surrounded by many other Cantonese people, arguably the center of Cantonese, you know, culture in California, as like San Francisco Chinatown was started by Cantonese immigrants and a lot of history and policy around like Angel Island and our specific diaspora centered there. So I didn't feel like I was a representative at that time. Also, the zine was just starting out. I just felt like this is a fun project because, you know, being with my other friends of other minorities, we just, it's like we make art. We write about our identity and that's not much to it, you know? Whereas now in Vermont, like, yes, I am the sole face of Cantonese culture and um, just, yeah, now taking on more of a role as I grow older too, of educating others about my culture. So educating like the basic New Englander who might not know very much about any culture and trying to show them there's nuance, there's complexity. What I tell you is like, I, I think I try really hard to show like there's two sides of the thing I'm telling you right now. And also, Yes, growing older, just there are young cantos and we need to support them. So that's also exciting and how I think about myself. Like, am I an elder yet? Like, what age do you have to be to be an elder? I think we're definitely elders. Like, um, last month was Pride Month and I was telling my fiance, I was like, oh, we're in our 30s. We're elders now. Like, people are testing, texting us about like dating questions and I think when you get like questions about life, like people come to you for life advice, I think you can claim elder status. And um, I think it's fun. I, I don't know how you feel about elder status, but I don't know. I'm like, it's a badge I wear. I really enjoy that. The fact that your zine is so accessible. Not only is it on the internet, but you have a paid version and um, you've put a digital version online as well. So anyone can read all the zines. Um, and also it's bilingual. Was that... Um, something that you thought about for accessibility's sake at the beginning of the zine, or was that something that kind of just came um, came along as time went on? Yeah, so when I started my zine, it was for like English speaking voices who have something to do with the Cantonese diaspora. After the first volume, it became very clear that like, okay, people in Hong Kong are picking this up and reading and wanting to know more and submitting. And so that's when a translator joined the team and really 
elevated the zine. I'm so thankful for the translator, just making it so accessible and working so many hours for free just to like get this word out and make it as accessible as it is. Um, this is not a publication only for Asian Americans. It's a publication for the whole diaspora all over the world. And uh, yes, many of the many of the artists and writers in the zine are from the US, UK, Australia, like these English speaking places. But that's not what we want to be. We want to celebrate the diaspora worldwide. And um, my, some of those people might, you know, their first language might be Chinese or Cantonese. So the zine is curated with diversity and like different voices in mind. And I get excited, of course, when we have submitters from countries that, you know, I hadn't heard of before or haven't been represented in the zine before. And the point of the translations is to reach Cantonese people in other countries that we haven't before. And I definitely, most of my work in the scene is asking a translator, like, what does this say? <laughs> like, can you write a response back? And prior to starting the scene, I honestly did not know very many people who were fluent enough to be a translator or fluent enough in both languages to do this kind of work. So I'm, again, so thankful for the translator and so thankful for the work they're doing and the impact it's already made. So, Catherine, you talked a little about, you know, the inherent differences that exist within the Asian community and the Asian American community. What are some ways that you feel that Asian Americans can uplift each other, you know, despite one group, you know, possibly supporting one thing or one group possibly having a view on another thing? How can the whole community be lifted as a whole? That's a great question. I think the main thing that Asian Americans can uplift each other, I say this with a degree of sadness, but also hopefulness is through capital. We have to support each other monetarily. This work is not sustainable. And um, if, if not for funding, so, you know, using our wallets to support each other, that sadly is like the only way we can operate in capitalism like or else this work will like grind us down and make us not want to do it and that's even sadder to not be talking about these things i mean with instagram and reposting it's all great and like reading each other's work it's all great but you know making a world that is sustainable and making a product that you are proud of and want to keep going, it requires capital. So I'm sure you guys have a lot to say about how your podcast is funded and things like that. And I also think the Asian American community can lift each other up by being critical with each other, not out of, you know, I'm right or who knows the most, but just like using your power, your relationship, your friendships, the people you love, really being critical of their stances of what they say, how they think, because we are, we are still constructing the world we want to live in. We are not there yet. And the only way we can do that is by asking questions and talking about stuff and telling each other 
like what makes us uncomfortable or what we don't like in order to get to that area of that world we want to be in because after this world we leave behind like it's the next one and so that's kind of what gets me thinking about how to lift each other up too and um I know you know for some people depending on like what path they're on where they are and like seeing themselves as, as an activist or a thinker like yes it's really fun to like celebrate the good things like the food and the similarities but also to be really critical about the anti-blackness that permeates every section of our culture and our society and to learn about your home culture or your home country whether that is from its critics from its thinkers from you know people who you know, aren't just like, this is great and romanticizing it, but just like both ends of the spectrum, like really know what you're talking about because it's like, as we've talked about already in this podcast, that it's like so heavy to be a representative of like your country when you like haven't even been there. But like when you're talking to, you know, white people or like Americans who don't know, like you have to share both sides and you have to show it nuanced because like if you only just share like yes you love our food and it's awesome and I love the food too it's not enough and we I don't know I feel like young people since you know they're so politically active and so interested and there's so much they want to do and say and think like yes and I support that and also invite them to be critical and think and just keep asking questions. Absolutely. There is nothing as a creator, there's nothing like somebody taking out their wallet and giving you some money or asking for your Venmo handle and like giving you money that like affirms what you're doing. Cause like, it's a tangible way of just showing that your work matters. And unfortunately we, we live in a world of capitalism, like building, I tell people all the time, like building community, like it's not, it's not an alternative to capitalism. Like we, like we offer these resources for free and we would like something back. And I'm sure for Canto Cutie as well, it's like you deserve to have something back. And um, like as a zine maker, like when I vend at tables, like it's nice to get compliments or like get Instagram follows and stuff, but there's nothing quite like somebody like giving you a $5 bill to like buy a zine or buy a sticker or something. Cause um, that sustains you for sure. Cause like for me, it's like, I know from experience, like if you're hungry, like you can't create stuff. Like there's this whole idea of like this romanticized, like artist as poor person. And it's, it fuels your creativity. Like, I just want that myth to die. Like you need to be fed. You need to be well to, to make stuff. And, uh, if, uh, if the creator doesn't get fed, like they don't, they quit. So absolutely agree. And also, yeah, being critical within, um, the Asian community, we can lift each other up by um, holding each other accountable for sure. And um, I think we are the first generation to really think about that more and to bring up these conversations that our parents and grandparents, at least in my experience, like just are very afraid to talk about. And um, I think the more we do it, the easier it becomes. So it's like, it's a muscle, you got to use it. So I completely agree.
So Catherine, earlier you talked about the distinction uh, between being Cantonese and Chinese. How can Asian Americans and then Asians from Asia better understand each other and kind of bridge that gap of understanding? I think that something that I ran into growing up a lot was, um, so as I mentioned, my mom, she like hosted international students from Hong Kong in my house all while growing up. And, um, you know, my sisters and I, we'd have these other people in our house and it sounds like a recipe for us to be best friends. This is going to be so great. We're all similar age. We're all young and cool. This is going to be great. But more often than not, it wasn't great. Um, these I would, I don't know what was the holdback between us all being best friends, but um, I would say there's a, there was a lot of pigeonhole and identities. And what I mean was that like these international students, they saw us as like just Americans. There's nothing Asian about us. We barely speak the language. And we'd be like, who are these fobs in our house? Like they don't speak English very well, you know? And so there's these labels that get thrown around like, ah, she's an ABC, they're a FOB, or she's an ABG, or, you know, there's all these labels. And it's like, it implies that there's like only two or there's set number of identities you can be, which is really sad. Like, okay, I'm ABC, I'm going to be ABC forever. That's it. Okay. And so it just makes it hard to get along and just imagine being young and like even more like anxiety <laughs> like it was not we we should have been like great friends and like been like awesome we're Cantonese this is great you know but it wasn't a party and I feel a lot of sadness and shame and I think a lot of that maybe is what led me to start Cancer Cutie like all right I can't be their friends so I'm gonna do this because that's how I can explore this Cantonese-ness because you know these labels they make people shut down I'm sure they saw they knew that we saw them as bobs and I think they they stopped conversation all the conversations we could have been having just couldn't happen because we couldn't get past step one of like just getting over ourselves but this is something I experienced time and time again in my community and um, I guess I don't have the answer for how Asian Americans and Asians from Asia can better understand each other but I do think that it involves working together to understand we are making that world we want to live in so uh, I think Earlier, we talked about like not blindingly mistaking your parents' nostalgia as something that um, cannot be changed. It's rigid, cannot be reinterpreted. Like, I think a lot of young people, like, they'll think like, my parents think this, and I've tried talking to them, and it's hard, and they're not changing. But just like having the mindset that we can reinterpret those old you know, mentalities, we can reinterpret those ideas. So I don't have like a step one, step two, step three answer for how we can better understand each other. Because, you know, I feel a lot of sadness 
and shame for the times we didn't understand each other. But I don't know, maybe it's this podcast. Maybe everyone needs to listen to this podcast and we'll all be best friends. <laughs> oh, I hope so. <laughs> Very well said. Yeah, it, it is hard. Like I, I think about it pretty often where it's like being Asian American, it's such a unique identifier and being Asian from Asia is also it's it's an experience I know nothing about like there's nothing quite like being being born in in the U.S. and you're born on stolen land and you live on stolen land and you know that and then being um Asian from Asia and and um in my experience people who are Asian from Asia they're like oh but you have so much stuff like chill but it's like really it's a complicated it's complicated and so something that it's not solving everything but it's like it's good to acknowledge each other's experiences so where for me I'm like okay I'm gonna try not to take it personally that you think we have all this privilege just like by being born here um I mean we do but like it's not easy all the time and um it's just different and that's okay like um it's just as valid but yeah well said for sure well, we are coming up to the end of our episode. So, um, Catherine, you were saying that you have a volume five coming up soon. Um, is there any other um, aspects of Canto Cutie or other um, things that you want to plug? Um, yes, I wanted to share that we will be at the Northeast Art Book Fair in September. It's in Portland, Maine. We will be at the Northampton Center for Arts um, Northampton Book Fair on October first, and we will be at the we will be at the Boston Art Book Fair on November fourth. I also wanted to share that Volume One, which was which still is our most popular volume, the one that started it all. We just did a big reprint of it with a brand new cover. And it has updated interviews and updated images. Um, the one artist I want to plug from volume one is Brenda Chi, who lives in LA. Um, her Instagram is Brenda Chi Arts or BrendaChi.com. She's an artist for the AAPI movement and has a comic anthology about Asian American life published with the Japanese American National Museum which is such an amazing graphic novel. You have to read it. And volume one prints a longer interview with Brenda. Volume one's reprint also has updated photographs and work from Canny Yearn. Um, her Instagram is Canny Paints and her website's cannypaints.com. She's in Hong Kong. She started out as a landscape artist and you'll see those works in volume one. But if you visit Kenny's Instagram, you'll see their styles totally change more into like abstract, metaphysical, more organic shapes and movement. And I love that her work has changed so much because it shows how fluid the practice of art making can and shouldn't often look and should be. And we also have updated photographs from Erica Pang. Her Instagram's ericapang.arts. Website is ericapang.com. They're an art therapist in Vancouver, and they see art as like a tool for healing, a tool for self-discovery. And if you're looking for something positive in this world, especially after this, you know, not always rainbow and fun <laughs> interview we just had, you know, I definitely recommend checking out 
Erica Pang's work because I look at it a lot in times of like when shit gets rough. And um, so those are three artists I'm really excited about and three events we'll be vending at soon. So if you're in New England, like if you, you've survived the winter, now you can hang out with us at the Zine Fest. Amazing. Yeah, definitely check out. I actually follow most of those artists and they, I agree, they're incredible and definitely check them out. Um, so building community tradition, final question is what's your favorite meme? And then Anu and I share our favorite memes of the day. <laughs> <laughs> so I have two favorite memes. One is the meme or the tweet that's like, we used to be a country, a proper country. And you say that with like a picture of like blockbuster or like something super dumb and like naive like oh we see a proper country but i also love um that it, it ain't much but it's honest work meme with like the farmer like i'll do any minimal like very small task and just like say that to my husband or whoever's around and if you haven't heard the meme, you're just like okay but if you have you totally it's get so it. funny yes <laughs> Yeah, I'll just do like the most basic thing and I'll be like, it ain't much, but it's honest work. <laughs> That's great. I have a couple of favorite memes right now. So as we've talked about, the world is kind of nuts right now. And so I have a picture of um, it's a farmer like sowing uh, their crops and then there's like an explosion and there's like a bunch of black smoke around him. And the black smoke says the world right now. And then the guy farming has a label that says me still doing my silly little crafts to stay sane and i'll show it to you guys but it's um too funny and then another meme that i really like i've always really liked the meme with the angry penguin i don't know if y'all have seen it but it's like um it's a penguin made out of clay and it's shown like doing angry crafts and it's just like That's just adorable. mad at the world but and it's great so um a favorite meme with that penguin is um, I've been watching this TV show called Our Flag Means Death, and it's my favorite show right now. And it's about two pirates who fall in love with each other. But one of them is um, one of the main characters. He is an aristocrat who left his life to become a pirate. And so he has no idea how to become a pirate. And his crew is just like, well, we don't even have a flag. We're not real pirates. And so in the first episode, the main character says, okay, well, we're going to make a flag. And so they basically like, he tells the crew to each make a flag and they're going to vote on the best one. So the meme says, Steed's crew complaining about having no pirate flag. And then Steed says, all right, arts and crafts time, everyone. And then the crew is represented by the angry penguin doing arts and crafts. And it's just <laughs> hilarious. So that's a great show too. Um, if y'all uh, need a new show. I think my favorite meme is uh, this one with Winnie the Pooh. It's it's basically Winnie the Pooh and Winnie the Pooh is like squinting at this little piece of paper. And the meme says, showing my mom a funny meme. And Winnie the Pooh is basically the mom. So the idea behind it is like showing like your Asian mom or whoever, you're just your mom, you know, something funny. And then you get like a big lecture after it, or you get like no understanding behind it. You're, they're just like squinting, trying to figure it out. What's my daughter trying to say? Like, is she trying to tell me something? Like, you know, they're just like going into like investigation mode over this like meme. So I really love that one. Yeah, definitely. Since I have not lived near my mom for a while I sent her a lot of memes and through whatsapp and most of them 
don't get any response. I'm like, seriously, you could slap an emoji in, but okay. I definitely relate. My mom will just be like, that's nice. And I'm like, really? Like I can tell her life news. Like I told her about, um, I was like, oh, we picked a wedding venue. And she's like, that's nice. So how's work? And I'm like, I'm doing a face palm right now for people who are listening. Oh but, my gosh, that's funny. Yeah. One time I sent my parents a meme and I literally got like a phone call like five minutes later, like just asking me like if everything was all right. And it, I was just trying to be funny, you know, like I was just trying to make a joke and they were concerned for me. All right. Well, thank you so much, Catherine, for coming on to Building Community. It was a pleasure chatting. And um, everyone check out Kanto Cutie Zine and go to those zine events if you have, um, if you're able to. And we will see you next episode. Bye.